I was thinking earlier, I was going to say, one of the things I was going to say was, um, I often wonder if we were transplanted back into the early church, what it would be like, um, whether we'd instantly feel at home. No doubt there would be some things we'd probably be a bit surprised at, maybe even feel uncomfortable about, but I would hope that at the very core we would feel very much um, that we were all on the same page. But actually, as I was singing that just then, I was thinking, actually, I wonder, I wonder what it would be like if Paul and Silas and the early church were transplanted here. And uh, we're seeing that with us just then. I think that would be, that would be quite something. Um, and I look forward to heaven when we believe we'll all be united and singing something very similar. So, very warm welcome. I can reiterate again, a warm welcome to you today, especially if this is the first time you've been here. As Ash has introduced me, my name is Anthony. And today we are looking at a passage in Acts, Acts chapter 16. And... Um, by God's help, we believe it's going to be something that's helpful to us and going to speak to us um, in a new way. So, we're continuing a series that we started quite a few weeks ago now, um, which we've called The Story of Us. And we've seen, over a number of weeks, we've seen the birth of the early church. We've seen it from a, f- a group of Jesus' followers um, gathered together in an upper room, after Jesus had been crucified and then raised to heaven. We've seen the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, come to that first group of believers. And then we've seen miraculous things happen. We've seen ordinary fishermen stand up in front of thousands of people from all different parts of the ancient world, um, explaining the story of Jesus. And we've seen many people coming to faith. We've seen a church that's faced challenges We've seen persecution against its leaders and its members, people taken off to jail, publicly humiliated. We've seen people martyred and murdered for following the name of Jesus. We've seen a church with internal struggles as well, um, as we were looking at last week, about what, what does it really mean to be circumcised? What does it mean to mix together Jews who've been faithfully following the word for millennia, with modern Christians who've just suddenly come to faith. And ultimately, we've seen extraordinary things accomplished. We've seen miracles, and we've seen miraculous happenings that ultimately have led to the church spreading and growing, and more and more people believing in Jesus. We've seen the lives of Peter, Philip, and now, most recently, we're looking at the life of Saul, who we're now referring to as Paul, because that is how Luke describes him from this sort of point onwards. And we've called this series The Story of Us, um, and I hope that you've found it helpful so far. I think that's a, that's a helpful way of thinking about it, because um, it reminds us that the origins of this church and much of the New Testament that we can understand much better through reading Acts is rooted in a historical event that we can read and we can follow, and that can help us really understand what it means for us today. And as we dig deeper and find out what the early church was really about, it can give us a much better sense of what we should be dealing with as a church. What should we be like? How should we treat one another? How should we relate to each other? And so now we're up to Acts chapter 16, which... Ash has already described as quite an exciting chapter, so we're going to have to try and maintain that level of enthusiasm. But what we see here 
is the message going out to a new place, to the first part of a mission to a place called Macedonia, to Philippi, which if we look at um, Acts 16, verse 12, if we look at the, the first section there, is described as a leading city, a Roman colony in that district. And we see a group of missionaries, I suppose. We see Paul and his team, Silas, who he's brought with him from Antioch. And interestingly enough, this is a section of Acts which is written in the first person. So we can, we can presume fairly reasonably that Luke, the author of this, uh, was there with them as well. And this comes as part of what's often referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. Now, before you all start switching off, I don't know, has anyone ever turned to the back of the Bible and seen a map with lots of nice lines on and, oh, this is Paul's first missionary journey, this is his second one, and then this is a bit of the third one, and he goes this way and he goes that way. And it can seem a bit, um, a bit dull, uh, a bit academic, a bit of a grand tour, as if uh, Paul has just sort of plotted a nice course on Google Maps and decided where he was going to go throughout the Mediterranean. But actually, I think before we dive into that, just looking at the journeys themselves reveals to us something in Acts that's really important um, to understand. And that's that, yes, Acts is the story of us, but we, and Paul and Silas and the characters in it, are by no means the most important character. Because although it is the story of us, it's not really about us, it's about God, very much so. He is the author. Here's the one pulling the strings. Here's the one who is governing where this message is going and how it's going to. He's the power in the miraculous events, um, and he's the force which spreads the gospel. In this, and this, this journey here is, is a great example and evidence of that. You see, um, back if we rewind back to Acts chapter 15 and verse 36, where Paul and Barnabas decide that they're going to go back to this part of the Mediterranean and revisit all the churches that they went to in their first missionary journey. And one of the things they're going to do is they're going to bring to them the letter that we read about last time, which is sort of explaining how Jews and, and new Christians are going to live together. He goes on this, this tour, but Luke is at pains to point out that, well, he kind of wanted to go to a place called Bithynia and preach there, but he was prevented by Jesus. And he probably wanted to go to a place called Asia as well. But he was prevented by the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what happened and how and what that means. But what we do know is it means that God was there governing the destiny of where he went. And it's the same thing as to how he ends up in Philippi. It was not because he sort of decided, oh, that would be a nice place, I think I'll go there. Uh, he, he, he was sleeping and he, he saw a vision in a dream. And he saw a man the man of Macedonia, it's quite a famous section, coming saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And you'll see in verse 11, straight away, puts the sea, straight for, straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on Neapolis. So he doesn't hang about, and he goes straight there. So pretty much it's clear that it's, it's God who's at the heart of this journey, and it's God who's at the heart of this story. And you can also see that in the first of the, the conversions, if you like, that we read about in Philippi. Um, so if we read from verse 13, On the Sabbath we went outside to the city gate, to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. 
we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Next page. She was... This, I need a better one with bigger print and fewer bent pages because trying to read from that... I'm, she was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So they go to this new place. Um, usually Paul would go to a synagogue if there was a synagogue and he'd start there. But in this case, there doesn't seem to have been one, so he's gone somewhere else. And lo and behold, uh, led by the Lord, he finds some worshippers of God. But actually, if you look, was it Paul's wise words that um, turned this lady to Jesus? No doubt he was very wise in his words, and no doubt that was very helpful. But if we look, it was the Lord that opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So it's very much God is at the heart of this story, pulling all the strings. And you see, that makes, for me, that transforms the book of Acts from, um, I guess, a nice academic Sunday school exercise where we plot out the missionary journeys from place to place um, to something that is, because it's about God and we believe that God is the same in this God, this story, as he is today, it makes it a story um, that we can directly relate to us today. The people may be different, the places may be different, but God is the same. Uh, it's not about the past and our past, but it's also about our present and indeed our future and indeed what we want to be doing as a church, believing in the same God. But I suppose a danger of that, so that's, that's the first really important thing to hang on to, is that God is at the heart of this story. God is pulling all the strings. Um, but it's a great story. And one of the dangers of a story like this is we come away thinking, wow, what super people this Paul and Silas were. You know, there's no way I could be like that. Um, and were, they, were they super people? Did they have a superpower? Well, one verse that I think is helpful and leads us on to our next point, really, is to turn a little bit further back in Acts to right at the start of the church and... Um, Peter and John have healed a crippled man in the temple in Jerusalem. And everyone is amazed at this and they say, how did you do this? How did you do that? It's in um, Acts chapter 3. And everyone's looking at them going, how did you do that? And in verse 17, Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though our own power or piety have made him well? I love that phrase. As I was reading that, I thought, you know, the Bible doesn't need clever sound bites to be made up for it because it's got them in there, you know. As though by our own power or piety we have made him well. The, the apostles, the disciples, the early church leaders are able to do these amazing things not because they have a great power in themselves or because their piety, their kind of um, religious zeal, their ability to keep laws, to live a godly life. Although they no doubt had that, it isn't that that has enabled them to do these miraculous things. Uh, it is the power of God that has done that. So as we look at these individuals, we must think they're not there. We're not seeing... Luke isn't portraying these as superheroes and, and that are somehow distant from us. Uh, it's the same, the same God and the same power that we have today. And so I guess there's a second, a second key point um, I think this passage gives us a real example of what it means to be bold. 
Boldness is a really important word, I think, in Acts, and you can find it littered all the way through. And it's a real commendable characteristic that's noted of all, all the early church. Um, and the Apostle Paul, writing in his letter to the Philippians, so towards the end of, of Acts, and he's imprisoned, and he's writing letters to the churches uh, that he's visited. And some of those are preserved for us in the New Testament. One of them is the letter to the Philippians. And, and what he says in, in Philippians chapter 3 is, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So we're not to think of these guys as superheroes who are somehow unattainable. But we are to try and imitate them. And imitate the godly things that they do. And one of those characteristics is definitely boldness. I guess let's ask the question. Do you feel like a bold person? Particularly when it comes to spread of the gospel, um, like we see in Acts. Do you feel like a bold person? Let's just think on that. We'll come back to that. But before we, we get into that, let's, just, let's think, what does boldness look like? Let's have a look at this passage and see how we see that boldness coming across. And there's a couple of things. And I think the first is a willingness to persevere despite previous challenges. Now, what I mean by that is... If we think back over the journey of the church, last time Paul went somewhere new, it wasn't all a perfect story. Um, On his first missionary journey, he went to various different places, and invariably he ended up running into people who had it in for him. Particularly a place called Antioch in Poseidon, he met some Jews who just didn't like what he had to say. And they got so upset that they would follow him to various different places. And eventually he came to a place called Lystra, and he was actually stoned. He was stoned to the extent they thought he was dead and took him out of the city because they didn't like what he had to say. Now, that must have been pretty, pretty brutal. But yet, he's just as willing now to go somewhere new as he ever has been. That is real, real boldness, I think. Real boldness. A second interesting point about boldness, I think, is that it's actually, it's not always the obvious thing. Let's have a look at the, the passages we've got here. Let's have a look at um, verses. I should have written these verses down, I think, really. Um, let's have a look at verse 13 onwards. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to a river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. One of those listening was a, name, a woman named Lydia. So as I said before, Paul would often go to the synagogue and reason and debate that Jesus was the Christ. And he was very capable of doing that. And no doubt, he was the man who, you know, if you had a massive stage and a thousand hostile people, yep, that was Paul there. He was great at that. But here, this story, he doesn't, that's not the boldness that we see. We see him going to find some people and we see him sitting down and we see him chatting to them. So although he's undoubtedly a very bold individual, that doesn't mean that his first course of action is automatically to take a sledgehammer and go and find something to break with it, to go and um, find the biggest stage he can and shout it from the top of the rooftop. Sometimes he does that, but in this case, no. He goes and finds somewhere to sit down. So boldness doesn't always look like finding out the big debate. I think another thing that comes out here is that boldness um, is not holding back when we know there may be consequences to something we do. And we can see that in what happens with this woman he meets in verse 16. 
So if we read from there, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So clearly this is a troubled, a troubled woman. She's not in control of what she's saying, although it may be true, um, but she's not in control of it and has been following Paul and his, his people for many days. And clearly for some reason, Paul hasn't dealt with this one straight away. Maybe it's because he's aware of the trouble it's going to cause if he, if, he, if he heals this woman. But he's driven to annoyance, because he's, he's, and he's either annoyed at the negative impact it's having on his ministry... Or he's annoyed at the harm that it's causing to this woman. Or possibly and probably both. But he's held back for some reason. Probably because he knows the trouble it's going to cause. But when he gets to a point when he realizes there's something he has to do, he heals this woman in the name of Jesus. He's not afraid to intervene in a situation that's going to get a bit messy. And as we see from the next part of the story, it definitely does. So boldness is not holding back. I don't know, sometimes maybe you've had a conversation around the table at work or something like that, and you just know the subject is coming around to something that's getting a bit sticky. You know, maybe it's a moral issue. And you just know that if you weigh in, the conversation is going to turn towards what you believe. And you just know that it's coming. Um, but boldness is, is saying sometimes we have, to just, we have to just weigh in. And the consequences will be the consequences. But sometimes you know it's coming, and you've just got to weigh in. And lastly, on this set of points, what does boldness look like? And one I'd like to dwell on the most. But I think clearly we see here how boldness is shown in the face of suffering. And we see that with what happens next. So after um, they've healed this woman, uh, her owners are very upset because they've lost their profit-making opportunity. They're not upset for her welfare. They're upset because they can't make money. And they stir up some trouble for Paul and Silas. And they, they, they bring them into the, into the town square, um, stir up allegations against them, saying, you are bringing some strange ideas. No, nope, I'm looking at the wrong section here. Um, they, they stir up trouble, and in the end, they are beaten, and they are thrown into prison. Um, but how do they respond to this? And it, it says even severely flogged. So this was, you know, lots of bad things happened to Paul, but he lists being beaten with rods as one of the bad things that happens to him. This is one of the, one of the bad things. And they get locked in the inner cell with their feet fastened in the stocks. But about midnight, what were they doing? They were praying and singing hymns to God. They clearly weren't doing this quietly because the other prisoners could hear. And I guess if you were in a prison, you were probably not surrounded by the most understanding and um, kind-hearted people you can imagine. But yet, they are singing these things loudly and boldly. I wonder what they were singing. But I imagine that probably, given what they'd been through, their songs and prayers were probably interrupted by groans of pain and, um, and suffering, given what they'd been through. But yet they do it. And that's... That's very bold. That's very bold. And if we look on a little bit, a little bit further into verse 26, 
We see what happens next. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now that is bold. You would have forgiven them for thinking, oh great, the doors are opened. Let's, let, let's, just, let's just disappear. Um, so actually, this isn't, this isn't a jail. This is the reverse of a jailbreak. The jail is destroyed, but the guys stay there. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe partly because um, Paul and Silas have realized that they've got, a, they've got an audience here um, who are interested in what they're saying. So interested, in fact, that they don't leg it when their doors, um, their doors shut. That is, that is amazing boldness from these characters, don't you think? Um, that is amazing. But where does this, where does this boldness come from? Um, and again, if we look back to the start of Acts, and if we look back to chapter four, which is kind of the first time the early church really experienced persecution. Um, Despite having healed this man in the temple um, and seen some amazing things, they've started to meet some persecution and they gather together. And what do they do? They pray. They pray for boldness. And they say in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats, though the people against them, and grant your servants to speak your name with all boldness. You see, the boldness doesn't come from within ourselves. And if, if I was asking myself the question I asked at the start, are we feeling bold? I would say, no. I don't often feel like a bold person. And in fact, I find some of this, some of this stuff very difficult. But there is tremendous encouragement in the fact that our boldness is not supposed to be something that we just coax out of ourselves, that's accomplished in our own strength. But the message of Acts is that this boldness, this boldness that we see, comes from God. And we should pray and ask him for boldness. I wonder if, perhaps if, 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 if coming to faith is something that you're thinking about, but you're worried of the consequences. Um, how will I, what will this person say, what will that person say? very real worries that we may have. Um, the message of Acts is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And boldness is one of the things that God will give to his servants so we can have every confidence to ask him for it. Perhaps one of the other things that helps Paul endure these kind of sufferings um, and moving on to the third key point I think we need to get from this can be found in, in some of the other passages in the Bible where he talks about suffering and we can see again if we look at the, the letter of Philippians which is the letter he writes to this church um, we can see in Philippians 3 verse 8 he says when talking about suffering indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I think that makes 
another really important point from the book of Acts, which is that it's all about the name of Jesus. All about the knowledge of Jesus and faith in Jesus. And we can see that quite clearly if we read what happens to the jailer. See, the jailer woke, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. This might seem dramatic, but if you recall, the last time we had a a Christian jailbreak uh, in Jerusalem, Herod Herod ordered that all the guards be put to death because of what had happened. So it's not an unreal threat that he's he's going to face death. And I suppose if, if you're a jailer, and that's your profession, then keeping people in jail is going to be what you do. You do it with big walls, you do it with doors, you do it with locks, you do it with a bit of brutality, probably. And this summer we went on, um, as a family, we went on holidays to all these Roman places. And one thing that I remember was Roman locks. I was amazed at the technology involved in Roman locks. They had keys, they had barrels with you know, rotating pins and all sorts of stuff. Um, this was not the cartoon jail with a simple plank of wood across the door that could just jolt free. Something quite miraculous has happened. And when Luke says for this jailer that the prison uh, was shaken, the foundations of the prison were shaken, I don't think that's a structural engineer's observation, precise though Luke is with his language. I think the world, the whole world of this jail and of the jailer and all its staff was completely overturned because what they did was lock people in jail and they were probably pretty good at it. And all of a sudden, something happened that showed this was completely meaningless and that God could do anything he wanted to. And so he comes to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? I don't think it's clear exactly how much he understood of the message. Perhaps he'd heard... um, Perhaps he'd heard the slave girl proclaiming loudly, as she had been, uh, that these guys were coming with a message of salvation. Um, But he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And what is clear is what Paul includes in his response, which is simply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the message. And it's the same message, it's the same name with which he heals the woman with a troubled spirit. It's the name of Je- in the name of Jesus I command this spirit to come out. And no doubt it's the same word of the Lord that he shares with Lydia. And in fact, if we go back to that account I've mentioned to in Acts chapter 4, where the early church were persecuted, they were persecuted for preaching in the name of Jesus. And when hauled before the chief priests, Peter was asked, just, just don't don't teach in the name of Jesus. We know you're doing great things, but just keep, keep the name of Jesus out of it. We don't want to hear of it. You know, do, do what you do. Do, you know, do, do sports, do, um, you know, do social groups, do debate, do fantastic stuff. Just keep the name of Jesus out of it. And Peter says in that instance, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So, the message they bring is all about the name of Jesus, front and center. And actually, and the last point I think, 
in the last section of our passage shows that this is a name that is worth defending. So if we read, um, if we read on to the next section, uh, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Why did Paul take that approach? Was it just to massage his bruised ego? I don't think so. You see, I think Paul is determined to defend the message of Jesus against the numerous false allegations to which he's subjected. In this case, um, it's that he's a Jew and he's doing stuff that's not lawful for Romans to do. Very often it's a case of uh, that it's Jews accusing him of doing things that aren't Jewish. He faces trial upon trial against charges that are not trivial but miss the point completely of the message. And he's determined not to just let this one go. He could quite easily just sneak off and just, you know, have, not make a scene and just, just leave it be. But as we've seen, that's not in his character. And actually, as we see throughout Acts, in the end, it's some, that's something that ends up with him getting all the way to Rome on trial before Caesar because he's not willing uh, to let the name of Jesus be accused falsely and to be uh, overlooked cheaply. So he insists that he has come and apologised. Perhaps not so much for his sake, but as much for the people who are going to come after him. It's really important for them to know um, that these allegations are false. And I guess, okay, to conclude then and to, to finish up, in this section, in this passage, we've seen a real range of conversion stories, haven't we? From the most dramatic involving the earth shaking, um, doors flying open, and people miraculously um, being freed but then coming to faith, to the most seemingly everyday Paul going down to a group of women, sitting down and talking to them, and then believing in the name of Jesus. But in each of those cases, from the most extreme to the most straightforward, it's exactly the same. It is the it's the name of Jesus being proclaimed boldly by his followers um, with God very much in control and pulling the strings. So I feel very much like praying for boldness. I, I confess when I looked at this passage and thought about preaching it, I was a little reluctant because this is not something, being bold and it's something that I don't find comfortable. It's something I find really difficult. Um, but the more I look at it, the more I take great um, encouragement from the fact that this isn't something that is supposed to be just squeezed out of us. Um, but rather, by praying to God and asking for the help of his Holy Spirit and trusting uh, his controlling power, we will have boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Jesus.